Hello, everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we feature a special panel discussion, the first 90 days, lessons learned from public and private sector leadership. Holly Noble, the chair of IPA ACT's Future Leaders Committee, is joined in conversation by Stephen Barrow Yu, the Assistant Secretary of People, Performance and Development at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and also Jill Charka, who is an associate partner at McKinsey. The discussion is about the importance of the first 90 days in any new leadership role, and indeed the differences between leading in the private sector and the public sector. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, and I'll now hand over to Holly Noble. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Future Leaders-inspired edition of IPA's Work With Purpose podcast series. My name is Holly Noble, and I'm the chair of IPA's ACT Future Leaders Committee, and I'll be your host for this episode. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today's podcast is built around the concept of how to make an impact in the first 90 days in a new job. When brainstorming topics that would resonate with our Future Leaders alumni, the Future Leaders Committee considered what this first 90 days might look like in the private and public sectors. With an increasing call for future leaders to take up mobility opportunities and learn from the different experiences offered working in the public service and the private sectors, the concept for this podcast was born. Today we're joined by Jill Charker and Steve Barrow-Yu. Based in Canberra, Jill works as a junior partner in McKinsey's social and health sector practice. Prior to joining McKinsey, Jill held senior executive leadership positions, including CEO and Deputy Secretary, in a diverse range of portfolios within the state and federal public sector, including employment, human services, immigration, superannuation and government statistics functions. Jill completed an Executive Masters of Public Administration through ANZOG in 2007 and also holds undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications in Psychology, Statistics and Applied Finance. She's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a Fellow and Certified HR Practitioner through the Australian Human Resources Institute. Steve is Assistant Secretary, Performance, Safety and Integrity at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Immediately prior to this, he was the Executive Director and Partner of People and Change at KPMG. Steve's long-term career has been within financial services. He was at NAB for almost a decade, where he held a number of senior people, change and communication roles at the bank. His final role was Executive General Manager, People, Culture and Capability across the NAB Group. Prior to this, he worked for the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank for many years, first based in Hong Kong and then in London, his final role being Global Head of People, Strategy and Resourcing. Steve relocated to Australia in 2007. Originally from the UK, he also lived in Hong Kong and Dubai. He holds a Bachelor's in Management Science and a Master's in Organisational Psychology. Steve is married to Lawrence and has a two-year-old daughter, Charlotte, and is currently going through the uh, perils of working from home and looking after children while at home as well. Welcome, Jill and Steve. 
Thank you, Holly. Thank you. So let's uh, jump in. Both of you have worked in the public and private sectors, each recently making the transition to the opposite sector. Steve from the private sector to DFAT and Jill from the APS to McKinsey. Tell me, how did the first 90 days differ between sectors? Thanks, Holly. And uh, it's great to be part of this, this discussion today too. So many thanks for the invitation. Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting question that you ask about sort of how the first 90 days differed uh, because it, it actually made me think about when I first started in the public sector, uh, which was back in Queensland, back in 2003, actually. Um, and really since that time, I've moved through either the Queensland public sector or the Australian public service. And that sense of sort of first 90 days or orientation hasn't been a particularly strong uh, experience because I've moved through rather than had a big transition into, if that makes sense. So I think what that has meant is that the the transition has been um, much more noticeable, of course, uh, with the move to McKinsey from the APS. Um, it's been also characterised because of the time that we're all in with the pandemic. It's been characterised by um, high levels, as you would expect, of remote learning, of Zoom discussions, um, you know, training delivered intensively via those remote mechanisms, which I think, well, A, it's I know it's atypical for McKinsey, as it would be for any organisation, and B, it probably changes the nature of that transition experience because you're building brand new relationships, perhaps not as efficiently or as um, effectively as you might if you're in person. Um, so I think I think those are sort of some big some big um, you know sort of changes that I think have really shaped that first ninety days, um, and I think that's going to continue as well, obviously going forwards. Steve, I'll pass the baton over over to you for your reflections. Great, thanks, Jill, uh, and thanks, Holly, and to Ipa for the invite to participate here. Um, sort of, I think transitions always throw up. Um, uh, a degree of, of challenge. Um, I think um, there's always the excitement and the anticipation of something new uh, and the, 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 you know, the anxiety, the performance anxiety, that, that, that what, this, what is this context going to be like? Um, as you said in the introduction, Holly, uh, I've lived in, in quite a few different places around the world um, and um, I've made a number of transitions at various stages. Um, obviously, this is a transition from me, for me, from being uh, a, a sort of a senior executive in a corporate setting into the uh, APS, and uh, that was something very conscious for me uh, on my bucket list of things I wanted to do. Um, I'm not going to repeat what Jill has said because I'd agree with everything that she has said about the context. Um, I think what I would say is that um, whenever you make a transition. And, uh, and for us as a family, uh, uh, it was from Sydney to Canberra, from living in a house to living in an apartment, and from being in private sector into public sector. Um, I think that the, the principles are seek first to understand. Go in with your eyes open, ears open, um, and try and understand context, because context really, really does matter. Um, and, you know, however senior you are, you know, and I, I guess I'm probably a little bit further on in my career, Jill, than you are. Uh, um, however senior you are, there would, will always be that excitement and a bit of anxiety going on. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting you're talking about the excitement, the anxiety, and also the, um, the different platforms that people use. I know 
uh, for a lot of our future leaders, we've heard that engaging with um, uh, the uh, IT platform can sometimes be opening opportunities they didn't think that they would have before. Uh, so they're able to look at different jobs um, and the options are, are much broader. I'm interested with um, the context of having different IT backgrounds uh, and platforms available in public and in private and the different context. Is there a difference in leading a team successfully in the private sector or the public sector that you've found? My take on this, uh, based on sort of a grand total of sort of seven months in, right, is that I actually think the similarities around team leadership are much greater than the differences. Um, and I'm sure there's different views on this, but from my point of view, you know, some of those fundamentals that really matter with any team, given that you're talking about a group of humans, endure regardless of sector, e.g., you know, the ability to kind of give the team a sense of purpose and focus, the ability to create um, a genuinely safe environment. You know, we talk a lot about psychological safety. It matters, doesn't matter what sector you're in, it's relevant. Um, you know, the ability to kind of um, bring people's work together, you know, pointing in the same direction to deliver a particular outcome. I do not think those things differ uh, because we're still dealing with people. Um, the only things that I would call out as being differences um, from my point of view are really around the type of work. And this is probably less a sectoral difference comment than it is perhaps an industry difference. So I'm working in an industry that happens to be professional services where the work happens to be more structured on the basis of projects, you know, with very distinct and clear start times, end times, work to be achieved in that time in contrast to previous APS roles, particularly where they're much more ongoing administration of a program, a function, you know, with that sort of ongoing sense, that is a big difference. But that's not that's not ubiquitous across the whole of the private sector either. Hence my comment that I'm not sure the differences are as much sectoral as they are perhaps type of work. And I think the similarities are stronger than the differences. But I'd actually be super interested, Steve, in your views on that, because you've sort of had a broader private sector set of experiences than I have. Yeah, no, I'd agree with you, Jill. I think um, the difference is context uh, and nature of the work. Um, I think that in the private sector, you've got more levers that you can pull than perhaps you can within uh, the APS. Uh, I'd agree with your start point. You know, people are people. Um, you know, I've led teams that have had five or 600 people in them across departments I've been accountable for. Um, at the moment, I've got a much smaller uh, area um, principles are exactly the same. You know, treat people as individuals, seek to understand them. Uh, and, you know, it's an old dated one, but the old situational leadership stuff uh, is really relevant, you know, individuals within a context. Um, I do think that, that um, the, the nature of the work, so, so I also, I did have a, it wasn't on my resume that you introduced there, Holly, um, but I did have a couple of years um, at KPMG as a partner immediately before joining public service after after banking. And again, as you say, that's a very, it's very project-driven work. Uh, um, it's got a different feel to it. Um, one of the things, I mean, and I, I loved the professional services firm I worked with, the context of the work, though, for me, I was looking to, to have a, a little bit more accountability end-to-end -end for longer, bigger pieces of work, which is what had typified my uh, career within uh, financial services. Um, so, so I, you know, it, it, it does come down to context, um, treating people as individuals, 
Um, leadership, and this is, you know, a theme I hope we get to talk about a bit later on. Leadership is an active sport. You know, you don't go into uh, being a, a people manager and a leader without actually acknowledging that this is really a serious and fun, sometimes not quite so much fun, but fun piece of, 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 of the role. So that's, um, I think you've shared a little bit around your leadership philosophy there. I'd be really interested to know if that's changed over time, um, again, Jill, for you as well, and if your experiences working in the different sectors has shaped that at all. So I'll go first on that one, Jill, if that's okay. Absolutely, without a question of a doubt, you know, people learn and grow and develop and we're never a finished item. We're always learning and growing and developing. Um, you know, my style has developed over a 35, 36-year career. Um, yeah, I've, I've learned from absolutely fantastic leaders um, that are authentic and giving uh, and and have backed and supported me. I've, I've equally had some shockers of people, leaders that are, are bullies and control freaks. And, you know, from them, I've still learned a lot from them. So um, I think you do modify your style uh, um, as it goes. And I, I think the challenge um, is is understanding the context that you're operating in. So, Jill, you're going from into a very different context like I am, understanding the context that you're going in and authentically being able to be yourself. Um, you know, my brand of leadership is to be open, uh, to be supportive. Uh, um, I, I'm very requiring, so I set high standards. Um, but, you know, I would hope that I'm, I'm fair and and you know, life is too short not to be doing something that you enjoy. And, and you know, that's probably a long way round of answering your question, Holly, but I think we're always developing our styles based on learning and based on context. And anybody that doesn't, I, you know, if anybody thinks that they're the finished item uh, and that they're perfect, well, then they're deluding themselves. And it doesn't matter how senior you are, by the way. Yeah, how true, Steve. Uh, certainly agree with all of that. Um, and certainly no finished items over this way either, I can assure you. Um, and I think, you know, to answer your question, Holly, I think your question was sort of about reflecting on how your leadership styles changed over time. I think there are, um, I think there's more flexibility that I've got now in that situational piece that Steve was referring to, where I'm much more explicit, I think, with myself and others about forming a view of what an organisation or a team or a group needs at a point in time and consciously moulding my approach to that, which, you know, my preference is to be less directive, but uh, there have been many instances, not many, but several instances where that wouldn't have been the right response for a period of time in that situation. So I've consciously chosen to be more directive, just an example of a shift. Um, so I think that sort of really conscious, explicit choice has featured much more prominently in my leadership style in recent years. But having said that, um, there are also some core anchors that, if anything, have gotten stronger uh, over time. And one of them is around, I touched on it before, actually around psychological safety um, so this is this is about genuinely creating a climate in your team where people feel safe to speak because I want them to speak and I want to know what people are thinking and I want to know what they're worried about in the context of our work um, because without that I don't have the whole information set. Um, and I suppose my belief in psychological safety has, has done nothing but strengthen in, in recent years as well. 
Can I just come in there again? Actually, you prompted something for me there, Jill. Yeah, one of the big changes I made was about, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago um, when I was going into a completely different context. I was moving from being a deep specialist uh, into being a generalist and leading very large teams. My new boss had come in and, you know, we were having that conversation uh, uh, about how we were going to work together. And, and, and I, said, I said to him, you know, well, kind of like people build trust over time. And he said, no. Nah. He said, you assume trust until it's lost. And that philosophically, you know, the old banking adage, trust and verify, you know, that's very important. But I think I, I've gone more to a position of, of assuming trust uh, and it's there for people to lose rather than making people uh, uh, earn the trust. Um, and I would say just as, you know, I've got the talking stick here, uh, um, I'm less of a control freak than I used to be. <laughs> That's always a good thing. That's good. Um, and I think I definitely picked up in both of your reflections, context being key, being able to translate across sectors, having that flexibility, but also, you know, knowing when there's the time to be directive um, is key. And as we work more and more with partners in private sector and public sector, more and more we're seeing them mesh together. Um, that's definitely a lesson that's particularly important. I'm interested, what does the private sector do well, which you think public sector workers could learn from? If there was the top one or two things. You have a go, Steve. You've been super polite in uh, letting me go first. I'm going to hand the bat on over your way. So I think there's strengths to both. Um, uh, I think the... the, the as I said a bit earlier, and I think in the private sector, there's more levers to pull. Um, I think, you know, the, the use of, of rewards. Uh, um, I think accountability uh, and uh, the, uh, the, I don't want to say the ease, because you, you always need to be careful around this. But um, I think there are, are more levers around accountability and reward. So, you know, the, both the accountability, reward, and I'm going to use the word punishment, but you know, you know what I mean there. Um, I think I think commercial sector has that more. Um, I think that there is uh, being fleet of foot and being able to to make. You know, I've, I've worked within very large banks which have big governance and controls over them. Um, I think that's the same in the public sector, obviously, but more so. Um, I think it's probably easier to get things done. Uh, um, in the commercial context than it necessarily is uh, in the in the um, in the public service. Um, but I'll talk about the strengths of public service a bit later on. I'll hand over to Jill because this will be good to get your early sort of um, uh, observations. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I agree with you, Steve. I, I think there are genuinely strengths in different sectors in different ways. Um, so, I mean, my early observation would be um, to state the obvious: the private sector is is often its own agent. You know, so it's it's often acting for itself. It's it's not typically acting on behalf of elected officials on behalf of government, which of course we are in the public sector. And I guess. I've seen a few instances of late, not just in my own organisation now, but in those I've served in the last seven months as well, where my sense is that seems to drive a sharpness in clarity around strategy and actions that are needed to implement that strategy because it's got that ability, you know, to, to act on its own behalf and notwithstanding shareholders, stakeholders, etc. but largely it's its own agent. I think the public sector, though, um, has a real strength around big systems. 
um, big, complex social systems, financial, economic systems um, into which, you know, the private sector interweaves. Um, but the, the public sector has to almost by definition be able to navigate uh, multi-layered, you know, federal, state, local governments at times across areas which are at best artificially designated between economic or social or other other categorisations because the problems that the public sector tackles, um, as we all know, rarely conform nicely to boxes or particular partitioning of ideas or sections of the community or sections of government. So I think that would be an early sort of reflection is that I think that, that ability to understand and navigate big systems um, is a strength of the public sector in the general. Steve, do you have a strength of the public sector you'd like to share? Yeah, at the, at, the, yeah, at the end of the day, if you drive it right the way down to what's our reason for being, um, you know, I, I've, I've had a wonderful career in um, commercial organisations where the imperative is about shareholder return and, and financial reward, along with other, you know, other, uh, 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 other um, uh, purpose-driven elements. But the reality here is this is about how I work for DFAT, so this is about you know, how do we serve Australia in the world and make Australia a better, safer, stronger place. There can be no higher purpose than that and that was what attracted me to want to serve out the last bit of my career doing something with 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 real purpose so I think that you know that if there was one word to summarize it would be that and yeah I think Jill you gave an absolutely fantastic uh, explanation um, as to to why the the time frames considerations and the benefits that I said about being in commercial around being able to make quicker decisions and stuff like that you know, you gave the, the perfect answer as to why that isn't always the case uh, or isn't the case within within the uh, within the APS. Definitely that sense of purpose, um, I think, is something that um, a lot of our future leaders have uh, identified. I know last year um, when we were doing uh, smaller interviews with public servants across, across the ACT, um, there were so many wonderful stories that were shared with IPA about how people were making a difference um, at every level um, of, of the enterprise. It was one of the best things I think that, um, that we've done. I'm interested in the, in the transition period, Jill, you said you're about seven months in now and, and Steve, I think you're uh, slightly around, around that time, five, yeah. What worked well in your transition and what was the hardest adjustment? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's a good question, uh, Holly. And um, as you said, I'm seven months in, which is probably relatively early. You could you could conceptualise that and say, oh, you know, you're over the first week or two. You're, it's sort of smooth sailing. Um, I, I think a transition of this size takes longer. So I guess in my mind, I'm, I still feel I'm very much in that transition, still making it. With that said, um, the best thing that has been useful for me has been um, a learning mindset. And it's not dissimilar to Steve's comment about uh, seeking first to understand, which I love that that adage, um, and it's super, super relevant. So I literally did not assume and do not assume that I know uh, the answer to anything uh, in particular. I have absolutely put aside default preferences. Um, I am always observing, asking questions, really trying to deeply understand the context. That is the most useful thing 
um, I think that I have been able to do. It's not always easy and I didn't think that it would always be easy, um, but, gee, it's helpful. Um, and then people are super happy to talk to you and share ideas and they know you genuinely want to understand and people hear that and they see it and that's when you the magic starts to happen when you learn. Um, the hardest part is just what I would probably uh, slate back to any big organisation, which is just getting to understand how it works. So there's a whole lot of stuff that we get trained on, you know, all the sorts of things we cover in orientation and induction about whom to talk to about what. And But as we all know, there's a truckload of stuff which is implicit and you just pick it up either by talking to colleagues, you pick it up on the job, you pick it up through some sort of you know, osmosis process, um, and that just takes time. Um, and so, again, I think the openness um, matters to enable you to, to, to get through that. But that's the hardest part is just what you don't know and what you don't know that's not written down. So um, I, I think the mindset that you come in with is, is fundamental. If you, you're coming in with an open mindset, John talked about a sort of an openness to learning, uh, uh, seeking first to understand, um, coming in with humility, actually, uh, um, I think that's really important because then you set yourself up for for projecting to others in that way. Um, I I have met wonderful, engaging people that have been nothing other than helpful uh, in helping orientate me towards uh, the the department and towards being in the APS. I can't really comment broadly on the APS other than I've had quite a bit to do with the APSC uh, um, because of my role, and that's been fantastic. Uh, um, you know, people people are really really helpful. Um, so my my induction and moving up that learning curve, there hasn't been anything that I've gone home and I've gone oh god no uh, from from that front. I think I think that there are a couple of dynamics that um, are are challenging. Um, I, I I think that um, and I have accountability for supporting the department around performance and talent and leadership. Um, I, I think that they're, you know, the extent to which leaders lead and managers manage and take accountability for that, you know, we've got a bit of certainly within the department I'm part of, we've got some work to do around uh, equipping our managers to be and leaders to be better managers and better leaders uh, and, and understanding within the context, Jill, that you described of who we are serving and and how that plays, how accountability rolls. I, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm just recalibrating in my head uh, uh, and experience the accountability that I have relative to, to where I sit in the, in the, in the structure and, and making sure that, that I prosecute my role and support my um, seniors to be able to prosecute their roles optimally. So I think it's a recalibration would be the summary um, because there are differences and those are to do with context. There's a theme here. I think uh, context is, is coming through loud and loud and clear uh, for our listeners, which absolutely um, is, is very, very true. Can you give uh, any advice to future leaders considering the transition between public and private sectors? I mean, we, we've heard um, part of the 30 review is absolutely we should be learning across sectors. Um, we should be... Uh, open to mobility opportunities more broadly um, because there's slightly different skill sets, different opportunities, different ways of working, and that context is really helpful to form a lasting and genuine partnership across the sectors. So any any advice you can share with our future leaders considering making the jump 
I, I think diversity of experience, diversity of teams is really, really important. Uh, um, I think that, you know, throughout my career, um, I've been able to lead, pull together and lead and manage um, diverse interdisciplinary teams uh, that have got commercial experience. My, my background's actually been academia, commercial, consulting, and now public, uh, public sector. I think what you, what you bring from each of those are slightly different perspectives and more resourceful. Um, I, I, I think if I look at the, uh, the, the amazing talent uh, that, that comes in uh, as graduates into different, those different sectors, uh, I was blown away when I was in consulting by some of the skills that, that you learn as a junior consultant uh, in a consulting firm. Um, you know, the, the governance accountability that you learn within this context, commerciality that you learn in different. So I, I think what I would say, and you know, I'll be careful about saying advice, but what I would give people as advice is, is to get diverse experiences. You own your career. Nobody else owns your career. We're accountable for creating the context for your career, but you've got to own it. Um, do you know, be honest with yourself about where your strengths lie. Uh, um, you know, you're never going to make, personally, I think you're never going to make a weakness into a strength. Uh, um, you know, how do you mitigate the risks of your weaknesses and build your strengths? Uh, and look for diverse experiences. And, you know, it's going to sound, it's okay for me to say, isn't it? But do what makes you, makes you happy. Yeah, you know, why be in a context that you're not enjoying? Yeah, you've made a great set of points there, Steve. Um, and your last one um, is an interesting one about do what makes you happy. And, and there's um, certainly a lot of a lot of discussion in McKinsey about uh, sort of very much similar, just phrased differently, which is identify where you find your energy, what gives you energy, and they're talking in a work context, um, and try to shift your work and how you do your work towards that. Um, so it's such an interesting point you raised. But, I mean, some other thoughts I had is... Um, for people sort of contemplating a shift in either direction, is I think, uh, not similar again, Steve, to your point, I think it's about being thoughtful about why you want to make the shift and, uh, secondly, to, to which organisation you want to shift and what are their values, what is their purpose, does that align with your, your purpose or your why? Um, sometimes I see um, people who kind of jump quite quickly from point A to point B maybe become dissatisfied, you know, jump back A to back to point A or onto another another point C or D and 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 I guess I, I hope that if people are going to make a shift, any shift, even if it's within sector as opposed to across private or public, that they've had a chance to think about what A, what is their purpose professionally, and B, um, what are they looking for in an organization? Um, you know, and for me personally, this is this is not necessarily for everyone. The values of an organisation matter really highly um, and its purpose matters very highly so that I can put my energy and my effort into doing something which is aligned for me personally with that organisation. Um, I think other pieces are, I think we've touched on this already, but being genuinely open to learning. And Steve, I think, has described it really nicely around learning the context of different organisations. I think if you, 
enter into another organisation, be it a sectoral jump or not, you have to accept you're up for some learning and at a minimum it's context recognition of that some things are different around here. Um, it may be more than that. It might actually be not necessarily formal learning, although in some cases that might be true, but a real willingness to do things differently, um, potentially to adapt. Um, one can't assume that we can just lift and shift how we do things. So I think being having an openness to that um, and I think having a long-term uh, view because sometimes a move might actually be challenging in the short term. It might actually be some you might perceive it or others might perceive it maybe as a backward step or maybe a sideways step. Um, and sometimes there can be good reasons for that um, in the context of what your longer term goal is or where you are at a point in time. So I think um, before contemplating changes, I think having a good sense of longer term, where am I trying to get to? What do I want to do? And thinking about whether this move is aligned with that at this time, I think is a really important piece to factor into that mix as well. Can I just add in another point on top of Jill's there? Um, I think you make great points there, Jill. Um, the reality is learning and development, you know, we describe it in very – I was chief learning officer, by the way, a couple of times. You, you, you sort of you describe it in very sort of neat uh, – um, uh, actually, it's often very messy, learning and development, because you, it's about change. So, so sometimes when you're going through these experiences, they're hard. I acknowledge that. You know, it is what it is. As I say to people where, you know, I have this concept of optimal stretch. And, you know, I've got people that have worked with me in different parts of the world. They're in way more senior jobs than I've ever had now. And, and the role of the leader is to actively engage uh, and help people, um, individuals, to, to realise their potential. And that's about being with them, working with them and creating this yeah, you, know, you people believe they can do this, they can actually do that. The difference between that, the delta between those two, is the role of the leader. That's the first bit. The second bit, from time to time, you're going to get it wrong. So I've had a couple of career disasters uh, during my time. Uh, um, you know, yeah, you know, my career has been really successful, and then a couple of bits that have gone really badly wrong. It is what it is. Own it, learn from it, move on. Yeah, nobody has this perfect, well, very few people, I think, if they're honest, have this very perfect playbook. Um, there are going to be things you do wrong, things that are going to go wrong to learn from them. Yeah, that's so true, Steve, and uh, I echo that. And I think I can think there's one or two things where things haven't quite worked out for me in the direction that I might have hoped. Uh, but, gee, they've provided some great learning and in some cases have really solidified. We spoke earlier about the pieces of leadership that we've changed on and I mentioned some that, in fact, have gotten stronger. And some of those experiences have actually just solidified those for me. And that's actually been a good thing. Um, so, yeah, there, there is there's learning to be had uh, some of it's more painful than others, and some of it's actually really enjoyable and fantastic. And we sort of have to take take all of it as part of life. And if I just, I, I know we're, we're labouring on this one a bit, but Jill, you made really good points about context and learning and purpose. I think culture is fundamental here. Yeah, I, uh, there was another organisation I worked for briefly. I got headhunted from HSBC to another bank, which will remain nameless. And the culture was 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 toxic. It was terrible. Um, and and yeah, I almost about well, after about six months, they realised they hated me and I hated them. Uh, it was a marriage not made where you'd want them. Move on. You know, these things happen. 
There are some wonderful things to add to our Future Leaders playbook there. I love that term. I'm totally stealing it. Um, some things that really stood out from both of your reflections. Diversity of thought and experience is key. Um, really thinking about where you find your energy, your happiness, your professional purpose, and what culture works with you um, and, and in your context as well. But also there was this theme of context that we kept coming back to. So humility, um, having that open growth mindset, um, thinking about your optimum stretch goals for your learning and development, and a genuine commitment to understand that context really helps be flexible, uh, whether you're in the private sector, public sector, or jumping back and forth between the two. Something that's been a really popular feature of our Future Leaders-inspired events in the past is the opportunity for our speakers to share one thing, a very quick 30-second summary, something they wish they'd known earlier, a little bit of advice to the younger self. So before we wrap up today, I'd really like to invite you both to share one very quick reflection or anecdote, something to leave our future leaders with. Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, yeah, no, you're laughing. I'm laughing too, Steve. It's a tough one, Holly. Um, oh, look, I would say, um, I'd say get back your gut, go with it. Give it a go. Um, there are so many ways in which we can talk ourselves out of something, be it I'm not good enough for this, that's too hard, they won't like me, I'm going to muck it up, whatever, whatever. And the number of times that I've said, look, you just forget it, I'm going to do this and I'm going to give it my best shot and what will be will be, that's actually served me really well. And what you get out of that is a level of confidence that you can have a go and it probably will be okay. It might not be perfect, but it will be okay. Um, so I think, yeah, back yourself and have a go. Sounds pretty pretty simple in some respects, but harder to implement at times than the words might might suggest. So I handballed that one over to you. Uh, you've now made it harder for me to respond because that was exactly what I was going to say, which is around <laughs> back, back yourself, uh, um, you know, trust uh, yourself and uh, I suppose what I'll add to that and there's a book called Film the Fear and Do It Anyway, Film the Fear and Do It Anyway uh, uh, which captures that sentiment. I think I would add in terms of existentially or uh, um, treat people with dignity and respect always, um, always personally try and look for the positive uh, um, and take accountability, uh, admit to your failures, learn from them uh, and enjoy yourself. Um, the one thing, sorry, I wish I'd done a bit more. If I look back over my career, I wish I'd been a bit more audacious a couple of times. Well, thank you, Jill and Steve, for joining us today and sharing so generously all of your insights. We've got book recommendations. We've got little bite-sized uh, bits of career coaching and planning. It would just be fantastic for our, um, all of our audience, but particularly our future leaders uh, who are tuning in. Thank you, everybody, uh, for tuning in to this special Future Leaders edition of IPA's Work With Purpose. Please keep an eye out for our next IPA Future Leaders event, a follow-on from last year's Future Leaders Hackathon. This year's hackathon is being delivered in partnership with the APSC and KPMG and is an event not to be missed. Also, the IPA Future Leaders Connect newsletter is being released very shortly. It's your one-stop shop for all IPA content created with future leaders in mind, where you'll find everything to keep you inspired, connected, and empowered. 
We're always looking for opportunities to engage with our future leaders. So please connect with us via our social media channels on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you, Steve and Jill. Thank you, Holly. It's a pleasure. Thank you both. So there you have it. Holly Noble, Stephen Barrow-Yu and Jill Charker with that insightful conversation about leadership and the first 90 days. But importantly, those contrasts and lessons that we have from working in the public sector and the private sector. Thanks again for joining us on Work With Purpose. If you do see the social media promotion for the podcast, please pass it along. Uh, And indeed, if you've got time for a review on your favourite podcast catcher, that always helps for the program to be found. Uh, We're very grateful for your support once again, and we will be back at the same time in two weeks with another episode of Work With Purpose. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.